right, good morning. So good to see everybody. Good to be back this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, open up again to Romans chapter 15. We're almost finished with this series in Romans. Today we're going to finish up 15 and then we've only got one more chapter to go. Picking up where we left off Sunday before last, we're going to start in verse 14. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord today. Romans 15, 14, Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand." For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Let's pray. God, I ask again that by your Holy Spirit you would take these words and make them come alive Pray that the truth in them would not just go into our mind, but seep down into our hearts that we may be truly transformed. God, open our eyes, our ears, our heart, everything that we need to be able to get what you have for us this morning. That Jesus may be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the things I love about reading the Bible is... Finding what specific thing the Holy Spirit may highlight in, in a text. And what I mean by that is in these verses that we just read, there is a lot of stuff in there. And there are several different topics that I could preach from in, in all of those verses. And I even thought that maybe I would park on these verses, park on this text for a few weeks so that we could cover all the things that, that I can see just in reading what we just read there, but we're not going to do that. And I may come back to Romans at some point in the future and and pick these topics up, but I uh, felt that the Lord wanted us to to really concentrate on one thing that I felt like he was showing me in this. I, I read over this text several times as I was studying this, just going back over it over and over. And every time I did, there was one phrase in here that jumped out at me way more than, than any other one did. And it's one that I wouldn't have expected at all. It's, it's in the last half of verse 19 where Paul says, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached 
the gospel of Christ. And I thought that was strange. What in the world is significant about that? I didn't even know what Illyricum was. And so I had to look it up and found out that it was a Roman province directly across the Adriatic Sea from Israel in the area that where where, uh, Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia are located today. And then I pulled out pulled up a map of Paul's missionary journeys, the three journeys that he took around that that area of the world and discovered that Paul never actually made it that far. He never made it all the way into that Roman province. He wanted to go there because it was a, a region that he knew that hadn't heard the gospel yet, but he never made it. And so now I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what what is it exactly that you're trying to show me in this? What are you highlighting? And I started thinking about all the places did go, that, that Paul did go, and all the risks that he took, and the dangers that he encountered. When he wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he was on the home stretch of his last journey, on his way to Jerusalem where his fate had already been sealed. When he got there, he was arrested, and then he was sent to Rome and eventually beheaded there. At the time Paul wrote to the Romans, he had been through quite a lot for the gospel, to say the least. Let's look at one particular text where Paul describes some of the things that he has been through. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I'm going to let you know right up front that I'm going to be flipping back to several texts in the Bible this morning. Uh, if you want to try to keep up in your own Bible, you can, but they're going to be up on the screen. And um, so you may just want to do that and then go back and look for yourself. But in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24, here's how Paul describes his journeys. He says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that does not mean he spent time in Colorado. It means... People tried to cave his skull in with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and ex- exposure. Now you would think that after all that Paul had been through so far that he would be writing this letter to the Romans and he would say something like, I'm on my way back to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm finally going home. And when I get there, I'm just going to take it easy for a while. I mean, I have more than paid my dues for this thing. I might even think about retiring and let young Timothy take over the ministry from here. I'm just going to enjoy the rest of the days that I have left on this earth. But Paul doesn't say that. He actually says that there's more to do. And in verse 20, he says that he wants to go to people who haven't even heard of Jesus yet, which would be a very risky thing to do because there is no telling what kind of resistance he might run into by, by doing that. But there's not an ounce of fear or worry in anything that he is writing here. In fact, in chapter 15, jump down to verse 30. 
Paul goes on here to explain how there was a special offering taken up in Macedonia and Achaia for the poor in Jerusalem and how he was going to take that offering to them when he went. But in verse 30, he says this, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He asked them to pray specifically that he would be rescued from those who were disobedient in Judea, which is an area of Israel that includes Jerusalem. What made him ask this? Why did he specifically ask to be rescued in Jerusalem? Well, turn back to Acts chapter 21. In Acts 21, Paul is on his journey here to Jerusalem. It's around the time that he wrote this letter to the Romans. And starting in verse 8, it says this. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. This is why Paul asked the Romans to pray for his rescue in Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him there. He didn't know all the details, but he knew enough that would make most people not go. It would just avoid Jerusalem all together. But Paul went anyway. Why? You could say it's probably because his passion for the gospel was greater than his fear of danger. You could say that his desire to save the lost was greater than his desire to save his own life. Or you could say that he feared God more than he feared man. And and I'm sure all of those things are true, but I believe that it was because of a bigger reason. I believe that it all boiled down to the simple fact that Paul trusted God. He knew that God had a call and a purpose for his life and that nothing could prevent God's purposes from being fulfilled. And he trusted God so much and knew that he was so good and so much wiser than he was that even if death was a part of that purpose, then he was good with it. If he was going to die, then he knew that God had a glorious reason for it, and so bring it on. Paul lived a very reckless life, meaning that he lived with no regard to his own personal well-being because he trusted God with those details. Paul was able to trust God that much because he knew what it meant to be in Christ. 
And if you're following along in your guide, the first point is this. Paul trusted God because he knew what it meant to be a son of the Father. He trusted God that much because he knew what it meant to be a son. You know, the word that God has for us in this message today is something that I believe is very desperately needed in the church right now, in our world right now. I've mentioned before how fear is such a huge issue in the lives of so many people today. So many people that I talk to that I know are just controlled by fear. And it affects everything they do and every decision that they make. But fear is something that has absolutely no place whatsoever in the life of a Christian. Yet so many Christians are completely eat up with it. Why? Why is that? Well, you could point to the circumstances that are going on around us in our world today as the cause of it. It seems like every day now we find out that there's been another mass murder committed by radical Muslims. And many are fearful that that's going to be coming here with just as much frequency and and more and more beginning to realize that it's really not a matter of if, but when that happens again. And then you've got the division in our own country between so many groups that just is growing wider and wider, and the response to that division has been violence. Some of you may have heard already that this morning, three more police officers were gunned down and killed in Baton Rouge, and seven more wounded. Everything going on in our world and our nation right now is extremely volatile. And you just can just feel the tension as if we are all just sitting on top of a keg of gunpowder that we're expecting to go off at any moment. And so, yeah, you could point to the current climate as a reason for all the fear in the church today and among God's people. But the truth is, those things are not the cause of the fear. They just magnify the fear that's already there. Next point. The root cause of fear is a distrust of God. That's what fear boils down to. So many Christians live in fear because the reality is they just don't trust God. If they trusted him, they wouldn't be so fearful. You know, there was a time when humans were not afraid. They were so secure in the shared life of God himself that they never had to worry about significance, security, or survival. Their fearless trust in God enabled them to live a life of absolute abandon, so much so that they just walked around naked all the time. I mean, without a care in the world about anything, not worried about what somebody else might think of, not fearful of anything. They were so secure in the love of the Father, they knew that he was going to take care of all their needs, not just their physical needs, but their emotional, relational, and spiritual needs as well. But they made one big tragic mistake. 
They chose to trust another source other than God. And when they did, everything changed. They hid and confessed it was because they were afraid. In Genesis 3, God called out to Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. Being descendants of that first pair of humans, all of us tend to default to that same fear. In one way or another, it creeps in and underlines our every thought, action, and motive. We begin to perceive everything as a threat to our significance and security and survival. And just like Adam and Eve, we hide and we will grab hold of any bush that we think might offer safety from exposure. Everyone's hiding behind bushes in one form or another. We hide behind the bush of religion thinking that if people see me going to church, then they may think that I'm something other than what I really am. We'll hide behind the bush of race, hoping to find our significance and acceptance based strictly on our bloodline. We'll hide behind the bush of our job and career, trying to achieve significance and security in that. Two forces that are so powerful and so strong that we will even sacrifice our own families to achieve it. We'll hide behind the bush of insecurity, afraid of what others might think of us if they found out who we really are. Bushes come in many forms. When Adam and Eve were cut off from fellowship with the Father, it forced them to become so self-conscious that they now felt responsible for their own success and security and survival. They no longer relied on God for those things, and so they felt like they had to take matter in their own hands, and and those things all depended solely on, on them. And worse yet, they experienced the chaos of trying to live outside of the design that God had for them. Humans were not designed to live apart from sharing life with God. We just weren't designed for that, and when you live contrary to what you were designed for, chaos ensues. In the chaos around Adam and Eve, they felt exposed and it scared them to death, and so they hid. And the rest of the Old Testament shows what fearful people do. That's why the Old Testament is so full of violence and brutality and rebellion and death, because those are the things that are born from fear. But then Jesus came. And he showed once again what that shared life with the Father could look like. He lived in complete trust of the Father, knowing that nothing could happen to him unless the Father permitted it. He knew what it meant to be a son. The last night that he spent with his disciples, he began explaining the significance of the events that would transpire over the course of the next 24 hours. And in John 14, 2, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He wasn't talking about a place in heaven, folks. He was talking about that place of a shared life with the Father that he enjoyed. 
He said, I'm going to prepare a place in the Father for you. The same place that you've seen me living in, I'm going to make that available for you. And he went to the cross to do that. And he shed his blood to restore what was lost in the garden. He rose again so that you and I could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to come out from behind our bushes and live again in partnership with God, free from the fear that controlled us. Because of what Jesus has done, believers in him can be just as secure in the Father as Jesus was when he was on earth. We can. That's, it, that is what Jesus made possible for us. We have no need to fear any force outside of God. No force at all. Not the force of government. Not the force of lack and want. Not the force of shame. Not even the force of death itself. Because Jesus conquered death, it no longer has leverage over us, folks. The apostle Paul knew that death held no leverage over him, and that's why he was willing to go to Jerusalem in the face of such an ominous prophecy. I want to show you two things that happened to Paul and to Jesus that illustrates just how secure in the Father we really are. In John chapter 7, the Jewish Feast of Booths was about to take place. And people from all over Israel would be descending on Jerusalem to celebrate it. And it says that Jesus' brothers asked him to go with them to Jerusalem, but he wouldn't. And the reason was because the religious leaders there were looking for him, and they wanted to kill him. You might think, oh, okay, well, then Jesus was scared to go to Jerusalem. No. Wasn't reason he didn't go. It says he didn't go because he knew that it wasn't his time yet. He knew that it wasn't time for him to die. There was a time for him to die, but this wasn't it. But he ended up going anyway. And I think the reason he changed his mind because he realized that because it wasn't his time, they wouldn't be able to get him. They wouldn't be able to. The text says that he went and he kind of snuck in and somehow he kept his identity hidden when he first got there and he started listening to the people around him talking about him and and saying how they wanted to find him and, and kill him. And so in the midst of this serious danger to his life, what did he do? He just slip out just as secretly as he came in? No. He goes into the temple of all places and stands up in front of everyone and starts to preach loudly. Talk about reckless living. He allowed himself to be exposed right there in the lion's den. And the only reason he was able to live with such fearless abandon was because he fully trusted the Father. And he knew that there was nothing that could happen to him unless the Father allowed it. Verse 30 of John 7 says this. This was after he stood up and exposed himself and was speaking in the temple. It said, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He was right there in the middle of the temple, a place, probably the easiest place in Jerusalem for those religious leaders to catch him. 
But nobody could even lay a hand on him. The Father made sure that nobody could even touch him. You see, Jesus had a purpose. There was a plan for his life. There was a mission, and the Father wasn't going to let anything happen until that purpose was fulfilled. Now hold that thought, and let's go to Acts chapter 23. In Acts 23, Paul, against the advice of his friends, he goes to Jerusalem. And he's arrested by the same kind of religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus so bad. And he's thrown into a jail cell. And during the night, Jesus himself appears to Paul and he tells him that he is going to be going to Rome to preach the gospel there. And Paul's going to be tried before the religious leaders in Jerusalem the next day. Some of the ones who hated Paul the most got together and planned to kill him before he even got there. And verse 12 says this. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, that's a pretty serious thing, because taking an oath back then in that culture was a big deal. You didn't break an oath, and so that meant that they would stop at nothing to make sure that they fulfilled their oath, and they would kill him, because if they didn't, it would mean that they were going to die, slowly and painfully. And so they got together and they planned this to ambush Paul while he was on his way to the, to the trial. It just so happened that as they were discussing their plan, a little Jewish boy was standing nearby and he overheard them. And that little boy just happened to be the son of Paul's sister. And he had enough courage to go and tell a Roman officer about it, which was unusual because young Jewish boys just didn't go up and approach Roman officers. What's even more out of the ordinary is that the Roman officer actually took this boy seriously. He believed what he, what he told him without even investigating all this himself. And so he made a decision, a major decision that could cost him his career based on a story that a little Jewish boy had told him. You know what the decision was that he made? He ordered 200 Roman soldiers... 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to escort Paul to safety. A little overkill, I would say, for just one man. But why did this string of unlikely events all come together like that? Because Jesus said that Paul was going to Rome. And there was nothing that could happen that would prevent his plan from being carried out. No ambush can stand against the plans of God. There was a final testimony to be given, and the Father was going to see to it that Paul would give it. That's why he didn't die in all those shipwrecks that he was involved in. That's why that it didn't even phase him when this highly venomous snake latched on to his arm. That's why he was able to survive being stoned. Yes, bad things happened to Paul. He had a lot of hardship. Suffering came to Paul. But none of it was worth being afraid of because he said in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He just figured all the, the suffering and the hardship was so worth it. So worth it. Listen to me, church. 
until the mission for Jesus was accomplished, Jesus was immortal, invincible. Nothing could touch him. Until the purpose that God had for Paul was fulfilled, Paul was immortal. Nothing could touch him. There wasn't a thing in this world that can keep God's purposes from being fulfilled. And here's what I really want you to hear today. God has a plan and a purpose for you. And there is not a thing in this world that can prevent God's purposes from, for you from being fulfilled. Nothing. God has a plan and a purpose for your children. Let them live life. Quit hovering over them and smother them, trying to overprotect them, afraid of what might happen to them. Be wise, but let them live. Let them be kids. God has a plan and a purpose for your spouse. There is not a force in this world that can stop God's plan before it's time. Last point in your notes, and it's a big one. Might rattle some of you a little. Until God's purpose for you is accomplished, you're immortal. (laughs) I'm not just talking about living for eternity in heaven. I'm talking about on this side, that until God's plan for you is fulfilled, nothing can touch you. Nothing can come against God's plans. That may sound a little out there and some of you going, all right, Jason, you've taken this sovereignty of God stuff way too far now. But what else can you take from what we find in Scripture? I mean, you've got those accounts that we just looked at with Jesus and Paul and so many other stories that are exactly like that. And you've got verses like Job 23, 14 that says, He performs what has been appointed for me. And Ecclesiastes 3, 1 that says, There is an appointed time for everything. Who makes those appointments? God. Yeah. God does. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the what? The plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, 11, where God says, my word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God has decreed a word over your life. And that word and that purpose will not go unaccomplished. The blood of Jesus purchased that momentary immortality. And in the Father, you are now free to live a life of complete abandon. Church, take risks for the kingdom. You're free to do so. I've mentioned before that I think one of, the, one of the main reasons that the church in the United States has been so ineffective lately is because nobody's taking risks anymore. Nobody's willing to live recklessly for the kingdom because we're so bound up in fear. Life without risk is absolute 
pure boredom. And our culture and our society today is nothing but a bunch of desperate attempts to relieve the boredom with entertainment and mind and mood-altering substances. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, I'm immortal, so does that mean I can go jump off a tall building and nothing's going to happen? Does that mean I can go lay down in front of a train track and nothing's going to happen to me? Well, if you want to get technical about it, yeah, but that's silly. I mean, nobody's going to do that. You may think, Jason, that's a risky message to preach because someone might start living kind of reckless. You know what? I hope they do. I hope they start living reckless for the kingdom. And yes, it is a risky message. Just as risky as preaching grace, afraid that somebody's going to use that as a license to sin. I haven't met one person yet that came up to me and said, Man, Jason, that grace of God, that makes me want to sin so much. God's grace got me plastered last night. No. When people really get his grace, they go, man, I just want to live a life for thank you to him. I want my life to reflect his goodness because of his grace. And neither have I met anyone else that said that trusting God made them do some stupid things. I'm just going to preach what the Bible says and not worry about how someone might take it the wrong way. I'll leave that to the Holy Spirit. And that's another example of how the church has been consumed by fear. It's fear that causes preachers to preach weak, watered-down, safe messages. Fear of losing some members. Fear of what others might think about them. Fear of losing their own job and their position. Can you imagine how awesome it would be if every preacher in this nation behind every pulpit would just start preaching with total abandon without any fear at all? Goodness. This church would be set on fire. I want to be that kind of preacher. I want to live that kind of life. Free from fear with absolute reckless abandon. Every one of us should be living like that because fear has absolutely no place in the life of a Christian. Sons and daughters of the Father. Jesus made it possible to know the Father in such a way to such an extent that that love casts out all fear. The Bible says several times that the just shall live by faith. Faith is trusting in the love of the Father. Look, I know you love God. I'm not questioning that. I know you believe him. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm just asking you a simple question this morning. And it's a question that you don't answer with what you say. You answer by how you live. And the question is, do you trust him? Do you really Trust him. Y'all, our fears will never be removed by more police presence, by more or less access to firearms. Our fears won't be removed by having the right leader in office or by having good health or more money. 
Fear has been dealt a death blow by the one who pulled us out from behind our hiding places and restored us as sons and daughters of the Father to share life with him in such a way that there is nothing for us to fear anymore. Nothing. In just a second, I'm going to pray. Before I do, I want to tell you that we need to get serious about dealing with this fear issue this morning. So I can tell you right now, I am so sick and tired and angry at the way Satan has just been having his way by scaring God's children to death with empty threats. And that's what they are. Empty threats that's got us absolutely paralyzed in fear. I am sick and tired of the church as a whole being so ineffective because it's held back by fear. We're going to do battle against that fear today. We're going to do it this morning. And I'm going to pray and the praise team's going to come up. And they're going to sing a song that I want you to sing in faith that talks about how there's no more fear in the Father. And if you are somebody who's been dealing with fear, that's been an issue in your life, and you know that fear has been holding you back and keeping you from being able to live the life that you know that Jesus saved you for, then I want you to come down to the front. I'm going to be praying, too, that God would set me free from fear more and more, and then I would not buy into those empty threats from the enemy. I'm telling you right now, folks, you don't have to live that way anymore. Victory has been won for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have won the victory that you have provided a place for us in the Father that that you enjoyed when you were here on earth, that you showed us how to live in that place, to live a life of complete abandon, a reckless life for your kingdom, knowing that you are in control of every detail of our lives. So God, I pray right now that those in here, I know there are so many of them that have been so bound up in fear that, that today will be the day that they are set free. And we address that spirit of fear in the name of Jesus right now and say that you have no right over the children of God. That in the name of Jesus, you must go, leave this place, and return to the pit from which you came. You are weak and powerless against the blood and the promises of Jesus Christ. And we declare you defeated today in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Holy Spirit, would you come? Open our eyes to see and receive the love of the Father in a way that washes out the fear. That you would be glorified. And we would live the lives that we were created for, live the life that we were designed to live in partnership with you. 
thank you for your truth this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you have laid out before us here to experience freedom in ways that we've never known before. In Jesus' name we pray.